So next week, next week, uh, we'll collect change again. And, and if you're new or visiting with us, what in the world are we doing? Well, what we do is we collect our, we collect pocket change. So we root around in our, our couch seats and in our car cushions and we put that pocket change into a bucket and we see how much change we can make in someone's life based on the change that we have in our pockets. And when we started out, I think we gave about $94. Um, and now we're averaging over $300. And so we get to be the answer to someone's prayer. And so we always give it away to someone who's not in our church, uh, which is so much fun. And a couple of people, I think, have, have started to come to the church because of that. But most of them don't, which I think is even better. Uh, and it's just an opportunity for us to make a difference right where we're at. And so next week, um, bring your pocket change because we will collect and keep your eyes out and your ears peeled. And also, if anybody knows, if anybody has a room for rent, I think Susan has someone in her life that might be looking for a room. Okay? So can I pray for our offering this morning? And then I'll invite our ushers to come forward and receive this morning's offering. God, you are the giver of all good gifts. You're enough for us. And so when we give our change for a dollar, that's like giving alms to the poor, God. This is where we would take the extra that we have left over in our lives and, and just sow that seed of blessing. But now, Lord Jesus, we give our first fruits to you. This is an act of faith to say, God, that you are worthy of our best. Not a tip, but a tithe where we can give out of the deep joy of knowing, Lord Jesus, you have given everything for us. We ask that you take these gifts, these offerings, and bring your kingdom here. Help our elders and our staff to be good deacon or good stewards of this money. Use it powerfully, Jesus, to change our lives. We trust you. We love you. And all God's people say it. Amen. Amen. So, a couple of announcements for you this morning. Um, John, let's go back to the announcement slides. Uh, first announcement is that we have a choir. Our Easter choir is going to be singing one hymn, Barbara, I Love Your Calilies. I'm going to put them down, okay? Aren't they gorgeous? Um, we have an Easter choir, and that choir is, when is it, when's it starting, Casey? This Thursday at 6.30 p.m. here in the sanctuary. For those of you who can sing moderately well, raise your hand. If you can sing moderately well. There's four, how many of you can sing poorly? Okay, you're all qualified to sing in the choir then. And, uh, and so, so the... The choir will sing this Thursday, 6.30, right here. Um, no experience required. The great thing about choir is that for, we're going to be singing a, a song and a hymn to open up Easter celebrations this year. And so we so look forward to having you do that. Um, so that'll be this Thursday at 6.30. Um, one of the things that I did forget to mention about um, Change for a Dollar is that every dollar that you give and you put in that bucket, 
the elders then match that, and we send that to a community um, in um, a, across the world. I think right now we either we're going to be choosing a community in Cambodia or Kenya. Where where is it, Pam? Where are the you don't know? All right. Anyways, Pam is the vice president for LifeWater. LifeWater International provides clean drinking water, sanitation, and the hope of the gospel all across the world to communities all across this world. And so we are so grateful um, that we get to partner with LifeWater. So when you give your, when you bring your pocket change next week, not only will you be an answering a prayer to someone's prayer locally, but then you also be answering a prayer internationally as well. Isn't that cool? It's so awesome. Okay, so we have choir. The next announcement is, I'm just going to pay attention because I'm not sure which what it is. Oh, the DNA groups. Um, so you can sign up for DNA groups. These are groups of three or four uh, where you're going to experience profound transformation, and you can find more about the welcome table. Next slide, John. Also, uh, if you are in youth group, that meets this Friday's from 6 to 7.30 in Big Luke, uh, who is there in the back. We can see a lot of our youth in the back right now. Um, Luke has all the information that you need. This junior high and senior high youth group. We offer both. Um, also, right after Easter, we will be having our new members class. We call that Coastal Core. And that'll be uh, Tuesday evenings. You'll learn more about what we believe as a church. Um, and you'll get to experience the different kinds of discipleship and transformation and opportunities that we have here at this church. So you don't want to miss that. That's Tuesday nights for three nights in a, in a row, or three, three Tuesdays in a row, uh, right after Coastal Corps. And finally, if you are new or visiting with us, we would love to be able to connect with you. It would be a great joy to be able to take you out for a cup of coffee. So you can fill out one of those new visitor cards, and you can give it to me. Um, or to someone who looks like they might know something about what's going on around here. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in a week full of tragedy from the Egypt airline crash to the heartache in Christchurch, New Zealand, we pray, God, your comfort and your peace upon so many families that are mourning this morning. God, we pray for a spirit of reconciliation across this world. Deliver us from evil, Lord Jesus. And we pray right here now that you, Holy Spirit, would move in power as we read your word. Transform our hearts. Set us free, God. by the power of your word, I pray that you would move in, in power to deliver our spirit from every hindrance that would be keeping us living like we're an orphan, like we're a slave. And so, Jesus, we bind up everything opposed to Christ that would be attacking us, bothering us, distracting us, putting us to sleep. Now, in Jesus' name, protect this time and this place. And all God's people said? Amen. Amen. So if you are new or visiting with us this morning, welcome. We're so glad that you're here. Let me tell you a little bit about our church. We believe three things, and we see this as the, as the sort of the big story of, of what God does in our midst. Number one, there's hope for our brokenness, and that it's not only hope for where we are 
in the midst of our struggles and our doubts and our pain and our grief, but it's hope beyond our brokenness that your identity is a beloved child of God, that you are loved just as you are, and that your story is not to be stuck as someone who is weighed down by the weight of failures or by what's been done to you, but your identity is someone who is set free to live in victory and enjoy for all the days of your life. Amen? Now, that journey takes time. That journey takes practice. That journey has an on-ramp to it, and that on-ramp can be as long as you need it to be. And it's important for you to understand. So the second thing we believe is that we're called to trust in our risen Savior. That journey is what we call trust. Faith is a relationship word. Faith is the same word as trust. So the way in which we're connected to our Heavenly Father, to Jesus, to the Holy Spirit, to God, is through this relationship called faith. And that means that God wants to speak to you, and God wants you to speak to Him. God wants you to listen because God is always listening to you. That your connection with God is through this avenue called faith. Amen? Isn't that fun to listen to the kids roar and laughter and scream? So much fun. Lastly, we believe that we're called to bring restoration to our community. You and I have a calling on our life, a purpose. We have an adventure that we're invited to participate in, and that is right now in your place of work, in your community, on your sports teams, at school, you're called to bring restoration. And you have the ability to make a difference in someone's life. To see that coworker or that neighbor who's having a bad day and to ask them how they're doing and take the risk of even praying for them. You have the ability to make a difference right where you are. And God will always join you in that work. And so we shamelessly um, invite you to dump out pocket change. And that with your little loaves and fishes of nickels and dimes, you get to see how God uses you to make a difference in someone's life. So that's what we believe as a church. So last week, we've been in the book of Joshua now for four weeks. And last week, this is the moment where this brand new generation was crossing the Jordan River for the very first time. And so we talked about how uh, water in the ancient Near East is symbolic of chaos and death. Do you remember that? Right? No one can walk on water. No one could tame the sea except the ancient Phoenicians, uh, which arrived on the Egyptian shores about 200 years prior to Joshua crossing the Jordan River. And at this point, what was, what was so miraculous about the uh, Israeli people at this point, and what everybody had heard was that God had parted the Red Sea and these people had walked through the Red Sea. So God had parted chaos and death, and these people had walked through from sure defeat on one side to a brand new life on the other. But now this new generation had never experienced that before. And so what happens? God commands them to, first, the, the, all the pastors, and I think the youth pastor was probably up front. It's a sacrificial lamb, right? And, um, and their, step, their job is to step into the water of the Jordan River. And once they set, set foot in the river, what happens? 
yeah, the water dries up and it piles up into this massive wall of water about 20 miles upstream. And everybody, I mean, they can't believe it. And their job, God says their job, your job when you cross the Jordan is to keep your eyes focused on the ark where God's presence is. And that's what it looks like to be a Christian, right? We keep our eyes focused on Jesus because he's the one who has held the water of chaos and death back so that we can go from wandering to a brand new life. Amen? So we've been talking for the last couple of weeks about this story of what it looks like to live in the promised land. And we've been talking about this reality that we experience transformation. We experience God moving in our hearts when we begin to love that what we want and what we become is determined by what we love. So we're learning to love Jesus more and more and more. Amen? That's what we've been talking about the last couple of weeks. So now, as Joshua and the people of Israel step for the very first time into the promised land, they are in an entirely new experience. They now have finally entered in to this promise that God has given them for over 40 years. And so the question everybody's asking is, well, well, now what? What do we do? How do we live in freedom? How do we live as people that God has rescued, which is where we are right now on this St. Patrick's Day? So let's read together Joshua chapter 5, verse 1. And we will find out exactly what they learned. And hopefully, as the Spirit leads, we will learn the same lessons. Ready? Let's read. Now, when all the Amorite kings, so those are the land Vikings, right? Those are the terrible, horrible people that have decimated all of the people who originally lived in the land. And they came in, destroyed them, killed them, and overtook their, their farms. When all the Amorite kings west of the Jordan and all the Canaanite kings, this is a different kind of land Viking, all the Canaanite kings along the coast heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan before the Israelites. They had mistake, had crossed over. Their hearts melted in fear, and they no longer had the courage to face the Israelites. Wow. So... This is incredible. Here we have a wandering tribe of a couple million Jews. They've crossed over the Jordan River. And all of the biggest, baddest, meanest warriors in the land, the Amorites and the Canaanites, the land Vikings, the hulking, meat-eating, six-foot-eight-tall, gargantuan, offensive lineman warriors that have destroyed everybody in the known empire, all of those guys are melting with fear. So let me ask you a question. If you knew this, if you were Joshua and all of the big bad bullies in your neighborhood were melting with fear, having panic attacks, freaking out, what would you do next? You would attack. 
right? That would be a good strategy. Now would be the time to show up on their doorstep. You'd flex and they'd run. Right? You just go, I'm here. And they'll, ah, and then they'd freak out, right? And then they would run. That would be a good strategy. Let's read what God has for Joshua next. Ready? At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again. All the guys are, ooh. Say, say what now, God? Wait, wait, say that again? Wait, you want me to do what now? You want me to take all the men, even the fighting men, and, and do, do what? This is going to make us weak. This is going to make us vulnerable. This is crazy. What in the world is God up to? Read this with me. God isn't worried about the very real problems and dilemmas you are facing. God has all of those covered. God's primary concern is your heart. God isn't worried about the very real problems and dilemmas you're facing. Let me just say that again. The dilemmas and problems that you're facing are real. They are not to be ignored or, or, or dismissed or reduced. The issues in your life are significant. But God isn't worried about them. He's not hitting the panic button in heaven. He's not calling people and going, I don't know what to do. <laughs> like he's got it covered. He knows what you need. He knows what the person that you love needs. He's got it covered. God's primary concern is your heart. So God is asking Joshua to teach the people of Israel their true identity. This is a group of people, this is a generation that their parents wandered in the wilderness. And their parents are kind of like the baby boomers. I love you all, baby boomers. My parents are baby boomers. My mom was a hippie. My dad was a hippie. They met at Ashland, Oregon at the Hippie Shakespeare Festival. Right? My mom lived on a commune. Right? My dad made up special languages. They did a lot of drugs. They're hippies. I love baby boomers. But the, is, the Joshua's contemporaries, the people of Israel, their parents wandered in the wilderness for a while. And they had a lot of confusion about their identity. Am I a freed slave? Am I, am I a people group that is defined by their ethnicity or their experience or their God? And as a generation, this generation, they weren't entirely sure about who God was and whether or not they could trust them. They had incredible experiences with God, and yet they weren't quite sure if they could trust him. And that's what it was like growing up in my household. 
My mom had supernatural, incredible experiences with God. Baby Boomer Generation experienced one of the greatest revivals that we've had in the last hundred years in this country, the Jesus Movement that happened in the 70s. So many of you are here today because you experienced incredible revival during that time. And still, even though we've seen miracles in our life, if you have, and I know many of you have, sometimes we don't quite know how to trust God with everything that we are. So I grew up in a household in which my mom taught me how to pray, but at the same time, when it came to finances, my mom didn't know how to trust God with her finances at all. And some of you have had that experience. Your parents might have loved God the best that they knew how, but there's plenty areas in their life where they doubted, they're worried, they got concerned, and they didn't know what it looked like to follow Jesus in that area. Some of you grew up in households where your parents didn't know how to follow God at all. They didn't even believe in God. And so as people, and some of you grew up in households where your parents were fantastic. They loved God and they did an awesome job, but you were just rebellious and didn't want to follow. So we have these experiences in which we grow up and the inheritance that your parents give you isn't just about money. It's about how it is that we learn and experience what it looks like to trust God and that is less taught and more caught. So the first thing that God wants Joshua to do is God wants Joshua, as they've entered into the promised land, he wants to take a moment, take a beat, take a rest, and say this, listen, I want to teach you about this covenant that you're in. I want to teach you about the promises that God has made to you. I want to teach you about what that means for your life about what spiritual leadership looks like, about your true identity. So why is this all summed up, their identity as God's children, why is this summed up in this very painful rite called circumcision? That's a great question. It's simple and significant. You and I need reminders. Amen? That's what the pile of rocks is about, the Ebenezer, right? Eben, stone, Ezer, to remember. That's what a pile of rocks is about. It's, it's a way of remembering. Um, I have a tattoo. It's on my ribs. It was a very painful process to get that too. It's a Greek word. It's katalason. It means reconciling. It comes from 2 Corinthians 5. That while I was an enemy, that God is reconciling me to my heavenly Father in Christ. And so every time I look in my mirror, right, I get to see that tattoo. And I remember, yeah, God, you're, you're reconciling me to yourself. And I got it on my ribs because I wanted to have the memory that, yes, that was a painful process. And it cost Jesus something. So we need a way of remembering. Well, circumcision is a way to help guys remember. Every time they look down, they remember. Evidently, guys need this kind of, of jolt. And this is what they remembered. Ready? I'm going to read this. I've been rescued and chosen by God. Thus, I will no longer live any part of my life like I'm stuck in slavery. 
I'm God's beloved child, and my life is defined by trusting God with every need. I'm committed to treating others and myself with the same love and mercy and abundant grace God so generously gives to me. That's what it means to be part of God's covenant, to have our identity be shaped by what God has done for us, that I would find something in my life where I could remember this each and every day. And what God said was, men, I want you to be the spiritual leaders of your household. And so we're going to do something that will help you permanently remember that I've made this covenant with you. Now, gratefully, we're not going to end the service of worship with a medical procedure. <laughs> the Apostle Paul reminds us that with Jesus, we've had a similar medical procedure, but it's accomplished in the spiritual realm. We enter as Christians, as followers of Jesus, our Messiah, we enter into the fullness of our identity as beloved children of God, not by cutting our flesh, but by what Jesus has done for us. Paul writes this in the book, in his letter to the church in Colossia, Colossians 2, 11 through 15. This is from um, the message uh, tran transliteration. Entering into the fullness of our identity is not something that you figure out or achieve. It's not a matter of being circumcised or keeping a long list of laws. No, you're already in. Insiders, not through some secretive initiation, right? That would be getting a flint knife and having a medical procedure. But rather through what Christ has already gone through for you, destroying the power of sin. Read this with me. If it's an initiation ritual you're after, you've already been through it by submitting to baptism. Now, that's a much more pleasant experience, amen? Getting dunked in the water is a little bit easier. We can all go through it together. So what happens at baptism? Paul's going to explain. Going under the water was a burial of your old life. Coming up out of it was a resurrection. God raising you from the dead as he did in Christ. When you were stuck in your old sin-dead life, you were incapable of responding to God. Last slide. But God brought you alive right along with Christ. Think of it. All sins forgiven, the slate wiped clean, that old arrest warrant canceled and nailed to Christ's cross. Baptism is the moment where you and I when we're dunked into the water and pulled out of that death back into the life, that's the moment that you and I can point to and say, that's the moment when I finally figured out and realized that I have a brand new identity. So now, as children of God, we can read this together. Read this with me. I've been rescued and chosen by Jesus. Thus, I will no longer live any part of my life like I'm stuck in slavery. I'm God's beloved child, and my life is defined by trusting God with every need. I am committed to treating others and myself with the same love and mercy and abundant grace God gives so generously to me. Amen? So when you've been baptized, maybe you have a, a reminder like a cross around your neck, or you got a tattoo, or maybe you're going to get another one, or you have 
an Ebenezer stack of stones in your front yard, or maybe you have a, a note on your window, or it's a reminder that pops up in your phone every day at a particular time, or it's you being here this morning, that you have a chance to remember who you are. You have a chance to remember whose you are. You are a beloved, forgiven, worthy child of God. Let's read. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the Israelites at Gebeah Har Halath. That's a Hebrew word that means Gebeah means hill, and Haraloth means it's the hill of the things that they just cut off. It's Gebeah hurts a lot. I think that's how you pronounce that word. So they made a, a mountain and hill of hurts a lot. Verse 8. And after the whole nation had been circumcised, they remained where they were in camp until they were healed. Yes. Yeah. Let's not move. Let's just rest. Baby, I need a couple days. Oh, man. You better believe they rested. Look. Did you know that you get to rest? Did you know that, that following Jesus isn't this life of being harried and pushed and with the expectations that you have to be perfect right the heck now? Did you know that with Jesus that you have the opportunity to actually rest? Because let's make no mistake, having our hearts transformed of leaving that old identity as slave and orphan behind so that we can start living in our new identity, that's a, that's a painful process. To say goodbye to your old habits of living like an orphan, it's not easy. Amen? Look, defeating addiction, which requires you to find other people that you can be honest with about and that you can forgive and be forgiven, that's not easy. Amen? Defeating slavery requires you to start new habits, which actually bring life. And when you start new habits, that's not easy. Amen? Oh, you don't sound all that convinced. Amen? Amen? Look, following Jesus is awesome, and it takes all of your energy and all of your strength, and it is not easy. Amen? It's no easy to think that when you're finding incredible success in your financial life, in your business life, in your relationships, it's not an easy thing to still remain humble and hungry after God, to not let all of that success go to your head. It's no easy thing to keep on pursuing generosity when you're broke or when you're flush. It's not an easy thing. And you're allowed on this narrow road, on this path less traveled, you're allowed to rest. God wants you to rest, to restore you and renew you. Because this journey takes all of you. 
So the entire nation of Israel experiences a renewal of their covenant. And now they're all rested and healed up. And the land Vikings are melting in fear. So now they're going to attack, right? Let's read. Verse 10. On the evening of the 14th day of the month, while camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, the Israelites... What? They're, they're going to worship. The day after Passover, that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened bread and roasted grain. The manna stopped the day after they ate this food from the land, and there was no longer any manna for the Israelites. But that year, they ate the produce of Canaan. For the very first time, the Israelites enter into this land, and they don't need to God, God to keep them alive every single day with manna. They now can walk through the fields, which are sprouting with grain. They can harvest that grain. They can make bread. They can feed themselves from what the land is producing. And so what do they do? They worship. They celebrate the Passover, which is the celebration of being freed from Egyptian slavery. They remember who they are and whose they are. That's what you're doing here today. Good job, by the way. Way to go. Yay. Yeah, that's what we're doing. We're celebrating and remembering who we are. And when we don't eat lamb, we eat Costco muffins in the fellowship hall afterwards. Amen. Amen. So Joshua, he's, you know, he's, he sees Jericho. He knows that this is the next stop, right? He knows that this is the fortified city that they have to conquer. And as the commander and general of the army and of the people, he's getting a little bit restless. He's like, okay, we've... Um, done that whole circumcision thing, and we're over that, and we partied, and we had Passover, and we remembered, and we worshiped. That was really good. And so he's getting a little bit restless, and so Joshua, for the very first time, he decides that he's going to go take a walk, and he himself is going to check out Jericho and look over the city to prepare his plans for the invasion. Verse 13, read this with me. Now, when Joshua was near Jericho, so picture it. Jericho's a little bit in the foothills. Joshua is climbing through, sp spying out the land. So when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? So there was something about this warrior with a drawn sword that Joshua was like, this guy's a commander of armies. This guy, this guy is clearly a general, and he's ready for war, and he's looking over Jericho just like I'm looking over Jericho. So is he, is he going to help us defeat Jericho, or is he on Jericho's side and going to defeat us? And so Joshua, you know, kind of gently, politely, you know, comes up, says, excuse me, sir, just wondering whose side you're on, you know? didn't see your uniform, you know, uh, you playing for Gryffindor or Slytherin, like what's going on here, you know, like are you, are you for us or, when I was a kid, I played baseball and every single, before every single game, I said, Jesus, just help us win this game. And I always got worried because what if the other team had more Christians on it? <laughs> That would mean that as all of them, they prayed, then God would be for them, right? And so I was always having this little negotiation with God. God, would you, would you please be for me and against them so we can win? 
So what does the warrior say to Joshua? Verse 14. Neither, he replied. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Whoa. A group of pastors asked Abraham Lincoln to pray with them and, and said, Mr. President, we'd like for us to pray together because we want God to be on our side because what you're doing here with the abolition of slavery and this war, we, we, we really want God to bless this venture. And Lincoln looked at the group of pastors and said this, my concern is not whether God is on our side. My greatest concern is to be on God's side for God is always right. Bless you. So what the great warrior is saying to Joshua is this. Joshua, you're not the hero of the story. This is not your battle. God is the hero. This is God's battle. Joshua, you have the question wrong. I'm not here to take sides. I'm here to take over. Think about it. Joshua is spying out Jericho. He's wondering, how am I going to deal with this biggest problem that's in front of me? And he's going to kind of spy it out and look it out to see what's going to happen. And what does he discover? He discovers that God is already there. And God's not there to take sides. God's there to take over because this is God's battle. So what does Joshua do? Verse 14. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence. He worships. And asked this great warrior, what message does my Lord have for his servant? Joshua uses the name of God to address this great warrior. Clearly, he's in front of some angelic being or maybe Jesus himself. We don't know. And the commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. So the message that God has for Joshua is the message that God has for you. And let me spell it out really clearly. There's something in your life that you're concerned about, someone in your life that you're concerned about. It's your Jericho. It feels impossible. And you're spying it out, trying to strategize, figure out how it is that you're going to overcome this. I need you to understand that God's already there, that God has a plan, and he's not there to take sides. He's there to take over. The place of your struggle, the place of your worry, the place of your pain, that's holy ground. We don't worship God when everything's just fine. We worship God in the place of our greatest concern when we're falling apart and in every other moment of our life too. Amen? Amen? For we have a God who saves. 
And God understands what you're facing. And he has a plan because he's the hero of the story, not you. So we can fall face down in worship. We can hand over what we cannot control, what we're about to face. We can give it to God because we can be confident that Jesus is fighting our battles to win them for his plans and his purposes. Your battle, you do not have to convince God to show up to. He's already there, already working. It's a holy place. Then the Lord said to Joshua, chapter 6, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with priests blowing the trumpets. What a brilliant battle strategy. <laughs> this is the worst military plan in the history of the world. You want me to do what? Wait a minute. You're the commander of the Lord's army, and that armor looks really good on you, and that's an incredible sword, and you're seven feet tall, and that's pretty amazing. Are those wings on your back? I'm not sure. But your military strategy for me is to walk around this, this city over and over again, and what I'm supposed to do is I'm supposed to put the worship band up front with Casey playing the piano and Matt playing the guitar and James and Don's on the drums and we're going to play then and then all of the rest of you are going to have those little plastic trumpets and we're all going to run, we're all going to walk, we're, our, our strategy to win the battle is to walk around it while they're taunting and cheering at us, calling us names. I'm going to walk around this town once, that's okay, but on so that's Monday through Saturday. And on Sunday, you want me to walk around it seven times? Seriously? Verse 5 gets better. Wait, wait. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, go. <laughs> right? Can you, you're so lackadaisical. This is exactly what it would have been like. All the people, all the Jews are like, seriously, this is the dumbest thing. All, all the high schoolers aren't blowing. They're like, I'm not doing this. You can't force me to do this at all. Right? And then, and then you're all going to shout really loud, right? Da -da -da. If I was the Amorites, I'd be like, these people have lost their mind. I am no longer melting in fear. I am now have full of great confidence. Their strategy is lousy. Have the whole army give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse and the army will go up and everyone straight in. Look, um, God has specific instructions for you in your life that sometimes make absolutely no sense. They make no sense whatsoever. They're the exact opposite of what you feel like would be a good strategy to deal with the issue at hand. It makes no sense to forgive the person who's hurt you. It makes no sense to be totally vulnerable with your addiction, risking exposure or judgment. It feels foolish to stop sleeping with the person that you're dating, knowing that you might lose them. It feels insane to confront that person who's 
misbehaving with love, even when you're terrified that they'll blow up and leave and then you won't be able to help them. It feels silly to admit that your strategy isn't working. It feels totally impractical to, to expose yourself as not having it all together. Are obeying God, trusting God, sometimes it feels so crazy, it's like you're jumping out of a plane. This is Pastor Paul's wife, Kathy. <laughs> Last Saturday, she didn't tell Pastor Paul's sick today. We can talk about him behind his back. This is good. So, so Kathy doesn't tell Paul what, he, what she's going to do. She just says, I'll be back. And uh, knowing that he would be schwitzing at home if, if he realized what she was doing. And so Kathy went down to Oceano and she strapped on um, the front of this guy's. And there was an issue with the parachute, I think. There was an issue with the parachute, uh, which Paul found out about later. Paul's had a lot of panic attacks this week. That's maybe why he, he isn't. So th this is Kathy jumping out of the plane last Saturday. That's what it feels like sometimes. You want me to do what? This makes no sense. You want me to trust you, God? You want me to follow directions? You want me to, to forgive, to, to confront, to follow you, even when it'll make me look like a fool? Verse 20. Read this with me. When the trumpet sounded, the army shouted, and at the sound of the trumpet... When the men gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed. Now, this word collapsed, literally in the Hebrew, it means that there was pressure on top of the wall from above, and it collapsed. It's as though God's angels were pressing down on the walls of Jericho to collapse it. And the army charged straight in, and they took the city. Look, you, you can try and be the hero of your story. You, you can try and save yourself. You can try and be worthy enough for God. You can try and have it all together all by yourself. If that's your strategy, I need you to go out and baptize yourself. Right? Just dunk your head in the water and come back out again. I did it all by myself. Or better yet, circumcise yourself. Again, and again, and again, and again, and again, because it'll never be enough. It'll never be enough. There will never be enough of you, of you trying to save you. There'll never be enough of your strategy and your power to win the battles and the issues and the dilemmas that you're facing. You'll, you'll, you'll swing between fear of not being enough, not having enough, not having it figured out, or wild, uncontrollable pride that you're enough and you got it and everybody must bow to your wisdom. And either way, you will be utterly lost. Or you can take your shoes off. You can say, God, the pain and the uncertainty and the grief and the sorrow that I'm facing right now in my life, you're saying that it's holy ground. You're saying that you're here and that you're not here to take sides, but you're here to take over. And the strategy that you have as a beloved child of God 
when faced with something that you don't know how to conquer, is to worship. It's to say, God, I'm going to hand this over to you because your faithfulness remains. You've never failed me yet. I'm going to hand this person over to you because your faithfulness remains. You've never failed me yet. When this city I'm facing, this problem I'm dealing with doesn't fall down, I'm going to keep on walking no matter how foolish I feel, trusting that you, God, will bring the walls down in your timing because you've never failed me yet. You've never failed me yet, God. So will you do that with me right now? As the people of God, will you worship and sing in this holy place? Lord Jesus, bless and seal all these good things that you've spoken to your people in their hearts. I pray against all the enemy's plans to try and steal and rob and take them away now in Jesus' name. God, this is holy ground that we stand on right now. You've moved mountains. You've parted waters. We trust in you, Lord Jesus. You've defeated death and sin that we might live again. We trust you, Lord Jesus. And so we offer to you these most sacred, most holy places of uncertainty, of sorrow, of grief, of concern, our most precious hopes. We lay them at your feet. And all God's people said, Amen. let's stand and sing. Thank you. 
Yeah, 